Hello and welcome back to That HR Podcast. My name is Emily Burt. I'm Lauren Brown. And we're back to explore all you need to know, and plenty of things you don't, about this month in HR, including... The millennial myth. Management thinkers continually tell us younger employees are different. But what if generational differences are being exaggerated, or worse, deliberately misrepresented? I'm going to go meet some experts who are fed up of the messages HR's getting about millennials in the workplace. Plus, Lucy Adams on her mission for a new mindset among HR professionals at a time of great change and opportunity for the profession. And Tim Pointer solves another listener query. That's all to come. What is a millennial? Where do they congregate? Why do they eat so much avocado? And why do we stereotype them? Much ink has been spilled and many words spoken about this much derided generation. We've been called lazy, disruptive, narcissistic, materialistic and all sorts of other istics. But with so much conflicting information out there, employees can be less struggling to separate fact from fiction. To get behind our obsession with Generation Y, I spoke with some experts who are calling time on the millennial mania. I'm joined now by Andrea Spicer, Professor of Organisational Behaviour and Founding Director of Ethos, the Centre for Responsible Enterprise at Cass Business School. Thank you for joining us, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Talk about this incredibly um, well-trodden debate about millennials. Just to start off, what has your involvement in this debate been? What kind of work have you done around this topic? Well, I've been following corporate culture and its development for, I guess, two decades now. And one of the things which I noticed in the last, say, 10 years, there's been the rise of people demanding different kinds of things from the workplace. So seeing the workplace as not just somewhere you go to work, but somewhere that provides you everything else that you might want in life, whether that's, you know, space to exercise, social opportunities to hang around with people, even feeds you, etc. So people begin to demand more of their work and the mm. workplace gives them more. So one of the results of that is this kind of blurring of boundaries between work and life. And I think that's something which has been very strong for millennials in particular. So that's one thing. The second thing is just following the literature and debate which is coming out around millennials, which we're going to get onto soon. And once I began looking into that, I realized that a lot of the kind of popular talk about how people think about millennials is largely nonsense. If we actually look at the data, look at the science, we get a very different picture. So in terms of nonsense, you know, it's a strong word. Are there any, is there any truth in these myths? Can you kind of detangle some of that for us? What, what about the popular conversation did you find nonsense? Well, we're normally told that millennials have very special needs, that they want very specific things, uh, you know, autonomy in the workplace, lots of feedback, all of those kind of things. Now, if you look at meta-analyses which have been done, so meta-analysis where they they get a bunch of studies which have been done and sort of put them together and see what were the results. They ask themselves, are there any differences between four generations? So millennials, uh, Generation Xs, baby boomers, and what they call traditionals. So these were kind of pre-war. Um, and what they found is that there weren't that much difference. Uh, the main difference is stage of life cycle rather than specific generation. So there was no difference in terms of satisfaction in their jobs, commitment to their organizations, no, no difference in terms of turnover, you know, intention to leave. So we normally think, oh, millennials are footloose. They want to leave all the time. They're not 
not very committed to their organisations and maybe they're a little bit dissatisfied with their jobs because they don't feel super involved. Well, this study showed that that was not true at all. Where the difference lies is people's life stage. Just to elaborate on that a little bit, so it's actually more of a a characteristic of youth and a particular time in your life rather than something that's specific to this generation who were born between the 80s and 90s. Exactly. So if we look at job satisfaction, for instance, what we find in need for autonomy, what we find is that older workers tend to be given a little bit more autonomy, which we'd expect because they're a little bit more skilled and you can perhaps trust them more theoretically. Therefore, they're a little bit more satisfied with their jobs. And younger workers tend to have a little less autonomy Uh, And that means that they're a little bit less satisfied with their jobs. Younger workers, there tends to be a bit more turnover for various reasons, trying to find the right job, but also probably older workers have commitments which make them a bit more worried or scared about changing their jobs. And the other thing which we know, which is really interesting, is that if we actually look at people's happiness across their life their life course, it's a kind of like a U-shaped curve, right? So whenever I speak with my students who are all, you know, in their 20s, I guess, early 20s, I sort of say to them, okay, are you happy? And do you think you're going to become more happy as you grow up and become my age? You know, I'm some 40. And most of them will say, oh, yeah, you know, get a job, have more money, da-da-da-da. But that's not the case. On average, people, as they reach their middle age, become more and more miserable. So basically... <laughs> Millennials are in the slide downwards. And then when you hit about my age, you know, 40s, mid 40s, you hit the bottom, basically. You become less happy. It's the worst time in your life. Uh, And then after the kind of late 40s, people tend to then begin going up again. Uh, And there's a couple of reasons for that. One reason is that uh, people in their mid, you know, mid 40s or so, at the kind of peak of various commitments, children, you know, pressure from jobs and so forth. But they still kind of, younger people still hold on to hope, basically. They hope that they're going to achieve all these wonderful dreams that they have in their life of doing this, that and the other thing. Uh, When you go through my years, I guess you begin to give up a bit of hope and by the time you get to your 50s, then you've kind of given up hope and you just begin appreciating what you have around you. Hopefully not everyone, but... uh... Well, you know, the the great thing is that you actually begin appreciating the things you have around you, right? And instead of focusing on the dreams, you begin focusing on what you actually have and taking pleasure from the everyday life. So the most happy people are actually in their 80s. It seems like this kind of myth is actually underpinned by a, a less of a generational difference, but actually an age difference. But that said, that you've written um, in CNN that there are actually very distinct markers of millennials that does make them different. So the main difference is, isn't anything to do with a character of a generation. It's actually got to do with uh, um, the socio-economic environment that they were born into. So if you look at the kind of world that millennials were born into, or kind of grew up in probably more accurately, there's some big differences. Number one, obviously technology and this kind of uh, constant availability of things like mobile phones and the attention sucking potential of that. The second thing is uh, many millennials came of age during the kind of so-called Great Recession, so after 2008 financial crash. And we have quite a lot of uh, evidence on the, the second point, which is to suggest when people come of age during a recession, they tend to actually do well when there's a recessionary economy, but they tend to do less well when there's a boom. The reason for that 
is that they basically develop a set of skills which are quite good for recessionary economy, but maybe not so good for a boom. The second thing is that let's say you got a job during the boom or just before the boom, uh, you maybe got laid off or made unemployed or something like this or couldn't get a job when you left your, your studies. Uh, that's going to have an effect not just then, but across your lifespan. So for instance, we know a period of unemployment can have an impact not just on happiness when you lose your job, but throughout your life. Often people don't return to the level of happiness which they had pre-losing um, their job ever. We also know that people tend to, you know, kind of have a big effect in terms of their career progression across their lives. And a final thing is that if we look at there's been a kind of restriction on wage growth in the last 10 years, basically flat wage growth, that's going to have an effect of people's wage income across mm-hmm. their entire life and into retirement. You know, as well as the the societal circumstances, kind of on the back of that, there's technology in particular, mm. right? Like this is a generation that has grown up, is probably the first kind of tech natives I think we hear a lot oh. of. So there's that side of it as well that differentiates mm. them. Yeah, so t- the only thing I'd sort of focus on in terms of this tech natives, because essentially you're going to become, your tech natives now for the technology now, but, but the millennials are going to become kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of tech foreigners for the next generation as technology evolves, mm. just as my generation was a tech native maybe to the personal commuter. That's so, a really interesting point, actually, because we, again, it's the, this, this millennial myth of this is a generation that is defined by tech savviness. Mm-hmm. But actually, like you say, every generation probably thinks that they're at the absolute forefront of tech because yeah. they are. Why do you think that we keep hearing this buzzword, millennials? Why are we still talking about it? Who benefits from these myths? What is it that they're trying to sell and what are the dangers of listening to them? In a sense, we all benefit from the myths because it's an easy shorthand to be able to talk about uh, generational issues, right? Life, really life stage issues. I think the second group who probably benefit is some millennials themselves who are able to say, oh, I'm tech savvy and I know all these kind of things that you, the next generation Xs or boomers don't know and often able to kind of dress up, you know, simple technology skills as something very special. Uh, and then the final thing is probably a lot of people in the kind of PR, consultancy, marketing industry who are able to kind of create this identity or category and then kind of market goods to them when there's actually not that much that holds this group of people together. So what do you think employers in HR should do with all of this information then? You know, we have longer working lives. How can HR think about people in terms of career stage rather than age? What sort of mindset shift does it require to stop assigning roles and attributes to people based on their age. So age does have an effect, but it's probably not as a big effect as other kinds of things. For instance, uh, if you think about, say, something like gender or something like professional background, those things might have a far bigger effect than age stage has. But there is undoubtedly an effect that age stage has, right? So younger people might be looking for certain things like obviously skill development. They're probably going to actually look for being some direction, some mentoring, those kind of things. Whereas older people probably need different kinds of um, mentoring and encouragement. So for instance, there was a quite nice study recently looking at age discrimination and what it showed, sort of innovation and age discrimination. What it showed is that as employees aged they tended to become less innovative and then they, they tended to get passed over for promotions and those kind of things. However, there was a big difference between older workers who were able to reach out beyond their professional field or their department and older workers who just focused on their professional field or their their little silo in the organisation. So the lesson here for HR is that if you're trying to coach older workers, you need to actually 
facilitate them to build a social network beyond their profession or their silo. For younger workers, it's about actually about providing more direction. And the really big issue now for millennials is that that, 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 that generation is going through a kind of a life stage change, right? From young, you know, footloose wanting to learn to slightly older, wanting some, you know, having more responsibilities. And that's a huge transition that that firms need to begin thinking about. Yeah, so as a kind of final takeaway for employers, it's not to be mystified by this buzzword. Would you kind of agree with that? Like, what would you say to employers? Yeah, start talking about life stage and stop talking about the millennials, I think is a good idea. Let's stop talking about millennials then. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrea. That's incredibly helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking with Andrea got me intrigued to learn more about these myths. So I've come to see Hannah Shrimpton, Research Manager at Ipsos Mori, to help me dive deeper into some of these millennial misconceptions. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. So Hannah, you wrote a report called Millennial Myths and Realities. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how that report came about and what the inspiration behind compiling that was? Yeah, so Ipsos Mori, we've been looking at generations for about 10 years now because they're fascinating. There's five culturally quite distinct cohorts alive today. So we've been looking at unpicking some of the differences between them for years now. So a couple of years ago, we released the Millennials Report based on just the pure volume of fake news about millennials. So it was just using our generational expertise, trying to get at what's true and what isn't. The generation definition is millennials are born 1980 to 1995. And the term millennials is used for young people in general, when actually millennials are no longer that young anymore. Or it could just be people who aren't me even. And at that point, it just becomes a useless term. What's interesting about generational research is that you're trying to unpick what it is about the generation. So attitudes and behaviours that will stick with millennials as they grow older. And if you determine that, you can determine the future, so what they're going to be like when they're older. So we focused a lot of the report on unpicking between those types of traits and actually just being young or being the age that they're at. So when we were looking particularly at employment stuff, you see things like, oh, millennials job hop more than previous generations. And when you actually look at the data, well, of course, younger people do tend to move jobs a little bit more than older people as they're getting their foot on the ladder and perhaps trying to get a a pay rise. But actually, when you look at the difference between millennials now and Gen X when they were the same age, well, actually, they're job hopping no more, no less than generations before them. You also have things that millennials are lazy, that they don't put in the hours. That's Again, one of the top lines that you see quite a lot, right? That they're lazy yeah. and disengaged and that kind of thing. Of course, and it's just, it's just rubbish. So if you actually look at the data comparing the amount of hours worked, for example, in Britain by millennials, it's about one hour more than Gen X when they were the same age. So there's no there's no real difference. And uh-huh. also to bear in mind with like hours worked, the whole of our population is working far, far less than we ever did. So pre-industrialist, post-industrialist world, people were working like 66 hours uh-huh. a week for Gen X and baby boomers. Well, they would have been the lazy generation, quote unquote, for the generation before them. So what kind of, what other myths did you identify then? Because I think your research touched upon the rationale behind applying for certain jobs. So apparently millennials really want to identify with the kind of moral code or ethos of the of the business. Is that especially true for that generation or is that a broader phenomena? In terms of expectations 
of a millennial workforce. There doesn't seem to be much difference. They want the same things that everyone wants, you know, to have an employer that cares about its people, an employer that rewards hard work, opportunity for growth. So that those were the top three that millennials wanted and the top three that older generations wanted okay. too. One of the things that I thought was really interesting and a lot of newspaper articles and journalists and dodgy research was about how millennials were more into ethical purchasing, perhaps only purchasing products that were made sustainably and then actually boycotting products that weren't. And when we looked at our data, we've got long-term data looking at corporate responsibility and compared millennials with Gen X, no difference, no difference at all. So this this whole craze that happened across companies producing products wasn't actually based on anything at all. And that will probably be just a period effect. The fact that we're all becoming much more aware of purchasing things ethically, that's just become much more in the public eye. And it's not really driven by a younger generation. It's driven by everyone as a society. Yeah. And another one that kind of caught my attention as well, which I thought was interesting, is that I think we think millennials aren't trusting of institutions we think that they're quite cynical everyone always thinks there's a crisis of trust you know everyone always panics about it and what we found in our research on trust is actually no there's not a big crisis and it's not led by younger generations at all there's the other element of course is that trust is quite a nebulous term trust to do what and if you just ask someone do you trust a big organization well that doesn't actually mean that much you have to specifically say trust them to do what trust to produce a good product trust the ceo to to tell the truth so there's lots of different elements about it so that's the first thing to say but secondly What is interesting about millennials is that even though they don't really show signs of distrusting big organisations, there is like this unshackling from big organisations and big institutions. So they're less likely to be religious. They're less likely to pin their mask to a political party just because it's a political party. And they're also much more likely to shop around a bit more. They're not just going to stick to one brand they'll research stuff much more so they're not they don't have that loyalty and it's less about their distrusting of institutions it's about is that institution relevant to me they are no less likely to be less into brands they love Mm -hmm. brands just as much as they previously did one of my favorite ones is that there's absolutely no evidence they have shorter attention span of course and it's tied into technology as well because you know there's multitasking on different screens so maybe scrolling through your phone while looking at the tv but actually there's no evidence that millennials or even the younger generation gen z are going to be incapable of concentrating on a piece of work for i think that's good to hear yeah. employers <laughs> listening you know like great news <laughs> so what were some of the realities that you found in what ways are millennials different? So the kind of half-truths are, they're not politically conservative. So there was a big myth around them being kind of conservative young, for example. Interestingly, they do kind of emphasise personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. So they were less into perhaps the welfare state than older generations and big institutional responses to things. But at the same time, they're just as left-wing as all other previous younger mm-hmm. people. They're not getting married or having children as early as before, but it's not that they're just giving up on marriage and not having children, which was another myth. And actually, we'll have to wait and see. And the one thing that is very unique to millennials is that they came onto the workforce as there was a big economic crisis. So that has genuinely 
affected some of their behaviours and what they're able to do. And that's a big part of why they're getting married later and having children later, because it's taken perhaps a longer time to move out of the family home, have enough money to, to rent on their own mm. and actually afford children. So that is genuinely an impact that has happened to millennials because of the economic crisis, even though that's affected everyone. It's yeah. um, affected millennials at kind of a key point mm-hmm. in their life. How can HR managers and employers look at this research and, and get something useful from it rather than something mystifying? The only reason to look at millennials and other generations is if you're looking at long-term social trends. And if you want to look at what the broader framework will look like for your company in 10, 20 years, if you want to look at specifically what your workforce is going to look like and what what you should be aiming for within that segment, well, then you need to look at like the differences between within the generation. You know, your target audience should be... Thing, you should take into account demographics, you should take into account where people live. It shouldn't just be spanning 20 years. That that does become useless if you're looking to do a specific thing. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Hannah. That was incredibly useful. You're welcome. <laughs> Time now for our interview. The founder of consultancy Disruptive HR, Lucy Adams, is arguably one of the best-known HR directors of the last decade. Following the launch of her new book, The HR Change Toolkit, I met with her to get the latest in her ongoing campaign to shake up the profession. Lucy, how are you doing? Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm well. All right, so you've just published The HR Change Toolkit, and we did review it in the latest edition of PM. Tell me, in one short sentence, why should our listeners be reading this book? HR knows that it needs to change. I think we all get a little bit tired of being told that we need to change. But there are so many barriers to actually changing. This book aims to provide the ultimate toolkit to help you address all of those barriers. And in the introduction, you say almost exactly that, that it's very hard to make change happen. Why is that? I think any HR director team that tries to change, you kind of think, why? You know, Mm. why would you take that on? Because the barriers are so numerous. You've got leaders either indifference or uh, reluctance to change or not understanding why it needs to change. You've got a focus on line managers, trying to get them to behave differently, which is really hard. You've got your own team who perhaps are used to doing things in a particular way. And suddenly what you're asking them to do is quite threatening in some instances. You've got trade unions, you've got regulators, you've got the employees themselves. You've also got, I think, uh, an accepted wisdom. This is how we do HR. This Mm. is what good looks like that kind of largely dates back to the 1980s and 90s and some of these processes that we're still we're still deploying and actually taking a step back and saying I don't think this works can be really tricky you know you're kind of having to acknowledge that perhaps what you've been doing as I did for the last 20 years (laughs) perhaps wasn't ever going to work and it certainly doesn't work now so I think for all those kinds of reasons it's really really tough. And there's you know we hear so much about change these days Um, you could almost make an argument that this is a kind of constant state we're always being told that you know we're in a state of flux and there's things are accelerating so it's almost as though you know we're becoming almost indifferent to it and there's I guess a risk that people are more likely to ignore things that are being actually badged as change because we're forever getting this sort of oversaturation of that that sort of changing message. 
Yeah, and, and I think we've, we've kind of sold it on the basis of change initiatives, change programmes, mm. transformation programmes. You know, you can't keep flogging that message of that, you know, there is a big change programme coming. There is a, you know, it's, it sounds exhausting, mm. it sounds painful, it sounds confusing. And what we're seeing is that actually a lot of the more successful changes do quite the opposite. They don't badge it as change. Mm. They use small behavioural tweaks to try and get people to move and just do things in a slightly different way. So instead of kind of those, you know, those awful linear change programs that we had, which had a beginning, a middle and an end, and we would plot them out on an Excel spreadsheet with behavioural change happening on March the 8th, 2021, you know, which is completely unrealistic. Actually, those change programs that are much more granular, that go with the grain, that aren't badged, this big, scary thing, tend to be more successful. Bouncing off that idea of badging, you do talk in the book quite a bit about the inability of HR to recognise its own classic mistakes. How much of that kind of stasis would you say is unique to this profession? There might be a couple of people who say, you know, you're unfairly pointing the finger at us here. Is it unique to HR? Well, first of all, what I should always point out, because I, I think it's really important that I, I I'm, don't position myself as somebody that lectures HR. Mm. Everything I criticise I have done. So there is no more higher moral ground here. There is a huge dose of self-deprecation and humility here, added to which, as I've just outlined, it, it's really hard to do. So, you know, so I, I don't seek to be somebody that, that sort of, you know, lectures HR. I just think it can be much more exciting and energising to do it in a, in a different way. I don't know that it's unique to HR. I think that there are numerous other corporate business disciplines. You can look at finance, you can look at uh, procurement, you can look at uh, workplace, you can look at all of those. And I think all of them have many of the elements that I describe as being as what I see the key problems with HR, the parent-child relationship, one size fits all, and a lack of recognition that we need to design around human beings rather than putting in place processes that assume they will change with the process. So I think there are lots of other areas in the organisation that suffer from those similar kind of approaches, with perhaps the exception of marketing. I think, you know, we can look, and I mentioned marketing quite a bit in the book, because I think that that marketing does offer us in many ways some, some pointers to how we could do things differently as a function. And you've talked a lot today about the kind of the bureaucracy that the HR profession often finds itself swamped in, lots of regulation, and also about that need to design the profession around human needs and to move in that direction. How do we become more human in our approach to this role? And do you think the introduction of AI and and of technology is going to help this process or complicate it further? So can I address the first part of your question first, which is about the kind of the how do we become more human? And, And I think that over time in HR, we have become process experts rather than human behavioural experts. I think, not suggesting we all have to go off and do a psychiatry or, or, or psychology degree, but I do think we've kind of lost focus on the fact that our role is to understand how human beings think, feel, behave, are intrinsically motivated, communicate with one another, and to use that insight to design organisational processes, interventions that work with human nature. What I think we've done is we've become 
much more focused on efficient processes that we put in place because we don't trust managers to do it properly. So, you know, if you just take something like performance management, which is a you know, classic example of where we have designed a process that bears no relation to how you might improve somebody's performance. The idea that you save all your feedback up and give it all in one go, whereas the human brain can only cope with one change of behaviour at any one time. And if you're going to achieve that change of behaviour, then you've got to have a, a you know, significant level of communication around it, regular feedback, self-awareness. Whereas what we do is we save it all up in one lump and give it to them mm. in, in, you know, in, in a meeting that's a very, again, a parent-child dynamic. If we think about things like ratings, you know, line managers are incapable of rating consistently and objectively, not because they're bad managers, but because they are human beings. Full of unconscious bias. And when, when you factor in AI and tech, so oh, yes. what's, so the, what's the, the impact part. that this is going to have So think? I think it, it can go one of two ways. I think that if HR show a reluctance to get involved in the design side, and sometimes that can be a bit scary for us, you know, very often HR people will say to me, you know, I'm not techie at all. Well, I think we need to get techie and the idea that we can absolve responsibility and pass tech over to people that perhaps don't have those human insights, but are brilliant technologists, I think is a worry. So a good example of that, if you look at things like um, HireVue, something that's being used by Unilever, Vodafone Retail for entry level roles, it's a, it's a kind of mobile based interview. So it, there's no humans involved in it other than the person who's actually being interviewed. And what they did was they worked with HireVue to ensure that unconscious bias, bias against diverse candidates was factored out. Mm -hmm. So not only was it actually a much more positive experience, a much cheaper experience, but it also led to their most diverse candidate pool to date. So I think that's quite exciting. If we can get in at the ground stages with the technologists and ensure that whatever AI we're producing to support HR can overcome the worst of, of human nature, then that's got to be a good thing. It's a very busy time for the HR profession right now. And there is there is a lot going on. And on the one hand, I feel like we are seeing lots of really positive action from the community in terms of they're kind of owning gender pay now, they're, they're, they're taking on that gender pay reporting and trying to drive positive change there. We're seeing, you know, the apprenticeship agenda has been problematic in ways, but they are taking that on and they're trying to drive positive change there. Then on the other hand, we have things like, you know, the Me Too movement. I think there are still a lot of ways in which HR is seen as kind of the mouthpiece of the organisation rather than, you know, advocates for like good human change. And you've got some startups and some firms around Silicon Valley that are sort of saying we don't need HR anymore. Actually, it's, it's redundant. It's, it's over. But how can we step up to the plate and make sure that we are owning this really, really busy time? So, I mean, you talk about a number of areas there, the gender pay gap, apprenticeships, and, and, and I wouldn't point to those as being the most significant things that the HR community are doing, because in, in essence, they are largely kind of target driven, reporting driven, compliance driven, government initiative driven. I don't think that they necessarily offer HR the opportunity to show what we can do differently. What I think does offer us the opportunity to show what we can do differently 
is to support our leaders, line managers and employees with some of the key challenges that they are facing, which is whichever company I work with now, whichever sector, pretty much every geography, they're all looking for four things. They're, they're looking for more agility, so the ability to cope with the pace of change, to embrace that change, to come up with that change, to cope with competing priorities, to respond to customer needs. They're, they're looking for more collaboration because we know that geographical and departmental boundaries don't make as much sense as they once did. They're looking for more innovation and creativity to stay ahead of the market or to create new markets, uh, to be the market disruptors. And many of them are also looking for more productivity, more for less, more for less. Those those four challenges very often existing in the same organisation, added to which you then have kind of future workforce demands. You have, I, I don't want to bang on about millennials because I think we kind of over-egged that. <laughs> this podcast um, is actually, we are having a millennial segment on here. So, you know, it's a nice tie-in. <laughs> so you can talk, you can talk about millennials. Well, I, I, do, I do think that we we kind of sometimes um, I think we are over egg what you know the differences in millennials. You right. know, I, I think that you know, in the end they are human beings as well, and 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 I think there are some themes and trends. But your question was: Are HR becoming irrelevant, yeah. or is there an opportunity? And I think that if we see ourselves as either to be there to help employees or to support line managers and leaders, then I think we're missing a trick. I think what we're there to do, I think we're in the third stage of our evolution, and that is to create the conditions where our organisations can thrive. Now, that brings with it a need to operate at a very different level. It means that we have to think much more broadly about our relationships within the organisation and outside. But most importantly, we have to move away from the nursemaid and compliance officer role that we've been playing to date. And I think that's where if we begin to to play in that kind of arena where we are creating conditions where our leaders, our employees, our organisations can be more agile, productive, collaborative and innovative, then I think that's very exciting. And what gives you the biggest cause for optimism as we look forward? So there's a couple of things that I'm really loving what I'm seeing at the moment. I think the employee experience buzz, so there's, there's a lot of hype around it. And I think in many cases, there's a risk that we're changing the label, but not the contents. But I am seeing the real evolution of employee experience as a new focus, not just in terms of delivering initiatives, but how HR teams are structured, how they do their design, how they do their implementation, what it is that they're doing and how they're doing it that I think is really exciting. You know, really focusing on the end user, being much more joined up around the experiences that they want to create rather than the processes that they want to implement. So I'm quite excited about that, where I see it working genuinely. I think that's very exciting. And the second area which is kind of linked to it but that whole kind of beginning to think about ourselves as product owners and product developers rather than a service provider because I think with the service provider idea and concept it takes us into a region of consistent processes streamlined uh, universally applied and a kind of an efficiency mindset and a bit of a supplicant as well you know kind of slightly servile whereas actually designing products that enable our organizations to move forward to be more agile etc etc that takes us into very different types of solutions lucy adams thank you so much for coming in today. my pleasure emily lovely to speak to you
So finally, now it's time for our Tim's Pointer here to help us both learn and develop. Hi, Tim. Hello. You all right? Very good, thank you. <laughs> good. So we have quite a frustrated listener here, I think. You'll probably get it through my dramatic reading of it right now. I'm so I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I've set myself up for this, because I have to go. Don if it's not dramatic, I'm going to be disappointed, right, right. Lauren. Okay. So our boss keeps coming in at 10am, 10.30am every day, then eating a breakfast, which delays everyone else's work and day. It means they have to stay late because of her actions. It's come through. Everyone else has started at 9.30am. So I guess the question would be, what should you do if your superior is breaking the rules to, de- to the detriment of the whole team? Anyone who blew the whistle on her got fired themselves. My word. That was like a very intense ending. I know. I wasn't intense. expecting that finale there. What's the most recent Daniel Day-Lewis film called? You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> it's the wrong crowd, man. <laughs> I don't know to, any Daniel Day-Lewis I'm, film. I can't I'm picture Daniel remember, Day-Lewis. But in it, he has this most exquisite breakfast, but it goes on for <laughs> forever. A yeah. king's and, breakfast. You know, this is a re- this, look, so many serious points raised here, but you have to start with, my, my word, this is quite a breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> quite the beast. <laughs> Moving the breakfast the breakfast piece the um, delayed day. aside what's really interesting here is you're okay you think about the culture now what our listener is saying here is that this has been raised before mm. and now i'm going to make an assumption i get the impression this has been raised to senior management before and actually they're they're accepting this and that they're backing the team leader here and condoning this behavior now, if that's not the case, then there are some conversations to be had. You know, it depends on your rela- uh, relationship, mm. you know, into the HR team, if there isn't an HR team, to a more senior manager, perhaps to uh, um, in, a, in a smaller business, a non-executive director, someone who can have a more a performance-based conversation about how is this team performing and are we leading it in the right way. But I fear that we've been here before and that these concerns have been raised and basically, this is this leader's fiefdom. Therefore, it's her terms, her rules, her team. And then I get to a bigger sense of how much energy do you want to put into this? Mm. Because I always start by thinking, well, the most common reaction is we do nothing. Yeah. We kind of like get used to the status quo. All, every workplace has its quirks. Yes. And, you know, you walk out of one workplace into another and you're like, mm. my word, you do things like <laughs> that here. Yeah. And then six weeks later, you realise that uh, you could accepted all of those quirks because we're actually new for a fairly short period of time in the grand scheme of things. So you could do nothing and you'd actually find yourself getting used to it. And you might decide that you actually want to, de- to develop a very strong external set of commitments which require you to leave on time. That's a great idea. Mm. Yeah. Because I think there's always a huge amount of respect for someone that says, right, okay, you know, it's X o'clock now, yep. got to go. Oh. Be- and it's and it's not just the I'm off, it's the I am committed to. Yep. It's the reason for getting up and going. And I think many of us will have seen that in the workplace where someone just has that sense of purpose. And it's amazing, a purposeful exit can really have a sense of, well, they're, you know, they're on to their next thing now. Yep. And they've had that purpose all the way through the day, delivering on their various commitments. And now they're off to... They've got their sport commitment. They've got their class commitment. They've got their community service commitment, whatever it is. And it's a heck of a way to sort of pick yourself up, walk out on time. 
And then, hey, if someone wants to have that conversation with you on the back of that, right. you can say, well, I'm here on time. I'm here at 9.30 in the mm-hmm. morning. This is when my working day ends. You're Absolutely. not paying me for these extra hours. So yeah. off I go. Quite a nifty solution. So I just think don't get pulled into what is well-trodden ground here. Be really strong and confident in yourself. Have your strong world and be committed to that. And that's it from this edition of That HR Podcast. Thanks to Andre Spicer, Hannah Shrimpton, Lucy Adams, and of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Go ahead and rate us. We'd love to see your comments. My name is Emily Burt. I'm Lauren Brown. And the producer was Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next month.